0: Brothers and sisters, if you would open your copy of God's holy word, John 15, one last time. John chapter 15. I want to look with you once more at the end of Jesus' words here in the um, parable of the vine and the branches. We're going to focus today on verse 15 to 17. But for context, I will read verse 12 through 17. If you would please stand for the hearing of God's Word. John chapter 15, verse 12 through 17. Hear the Word of the Lord. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. May the Lord take his word and bless it to the hearing and the increase of our faith. You may be seated, brethren. So I, as most of you know, I grew up in central Texas. I, uh, it's funny, I saw a shirt this past week, I thought that kind of defines me, uh, a t-shirt that I saw this week. It had a big picture of the state of Illinois, but right in the middle it had a cut out of the state of Texas and it said, a Texas boy living in an Illinois world. I thought that's kind of where I'm at, but I, I love this church, I love every one of you all. And I must say that as much as I do love my home state, particularly when the weather has been like it's been the past week or two, I'm not a fan of snow, folks. It's pretty on postcards, but it's, that's about as far as it goes. That all being said, I would tell you with utmost sincerity before the Lord, you could not pay me to go back to Texas at this time. Because I love you all and I love this church. And I love what we have here at Providence. I love what the Lord is doing here at Providence, and I'm glad to be part of it. So I'll stay in Illinois, with joy of heart, with you all, all of the things notwithstanding. But I did grow up in Texas, and in Central Texas. Have you ever seen the terrain of Central Texas? One thing you find about Texas is Texas is is a state where we 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 are subject down there to what I call r- really wild meteorological extremes. You know. Um, Central Texas is very, very rocky. It's built right on the edge of what's called the Edwards Plateau, the hill country. And, and from Austin, where I grew up, westward, uh, pretty much you, you dig down a couple of inches of topsoil and you're hitting solid rock. You can forget topsoil. Getting anything to grow down there is hard and laborious. So not only do you not have a lot of soil to work with, but the climate Basically speaking, you know, down in Texas, especially in the summertime, you know, summer summer really goes from about March to November down there, and and uh, and and you know, you'll, it's not at all unusual to have you know hundred degree days from from May well into early October, and and typically what happens is for, you'll have three or four, and sometimes five years in a row where the summers will be just really really dry, like drought, and and. You can forget grass, right? Uh, it's it just, you know, there's, there's dead, dead weeds <laughs> everywhere. Uh, it's just brown and dingy. And then about every fifth year, we'll get a change in the weather pattern in the El Nino, and it'll come down, and then Texas will just be completely underwater and flooded for one summer. I've seen a lot of that. It's predictable. And so you either get no water, or about every five years, you get five years worth of water in one year. Because it's a difficult place to grow. I say all that because in central Texas, there's many things that are wonderful there. But one of the things that I always enjoyed growing up, out in the hill country of Texas, out on those rocky, craggy plateaus with very little topsoil, you'll find a couple things that are wonderful. Number one is they make out there and grow some of the most amazing Wine in vineyards you'll ever see, and Central Texas has is known for its peaches. You ever been out in the the hill country? They have peach trees. I know, Doug. You wouldn't think it, but they do. There's peach trees and orchards out there that grow with huge peaches, rich, succulent. And and you'd look at that and think, how does that work? How on earth can that work? Now now, now I'll be fair. They do, in order to make this work, they have to irrigate. You have to pipe water in. You don't just rely on natural water because it's not very abundant out there. Or if it is, it's way down. There's an aquifer under called the Edwards Aquifer, but it's way down there. And you have to pump water out of that. It's hidden. But you find that the Lord causes rich and succulent fruit to grow in the most unlikely of places. In the hardest climates. With very little soil. The water is brought in. And it causes amazing things to happen. Don't ask me to explain it. It just does. Now I say all this to say this. As we've looked at at this teaching about the vine and the branches. One of the things I have not really mentioned up to this point. Is that there is a underlying. This whole section you might say. Focuses on one key fundamental thing. We've heard this time and again, that from the very beginning back in verse 1 all the way up to the end of verse 16, there's a focus on the idea that God, His purpose for the vine, purpose for the branches, Christ is the vine and His people is the branches, is that they would bear much fruit. The whole reason why the vine dresser prunes and purgeth the branches is so those that bear fruit is so that they would bear more fruit. The the reason why He cuts off those who are fruitless is so to make more room for those that are fruit-bearing to bear more fruit. Because the fruit that is born out of the branches is the fruit that flows from the life of the vine, the life of Christ. It is the fruits of the Spirit and the good works that accompany it. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is, as Matthew says, Letting Your light so shine before men that they may see Your good works. The fruits that flow from within You that overflow in good works, they may see it and that they would eat of it and see how succulent it is and they would glorify Your Father in Heaven. This idea of fruit bearing is fundamentally, it is garden imagery. It should hearken us back to Eden. There was in Eden a tree of life. Adam and Eve were permitted to eat of it. And they did so with joy until sin entered and corruption. And they were cast out and the way was barred back. But the Lord God being merciful and rich and gracious. He first brought the locust of his worship where his throne was in the garden. He brought it down from on that mountain where the rivers flowed. And he brought it down and planted it amongst his people as a tabernacle. A way back into the presence of God. A a portable garden, if you will. Right there in their midst. But the veil was still there. And the way in was still barred until that final sacrifice should come who would go through the veil, as it were, to remove the angelic swords and restore the way into the presence of the Holy God. Israel was called to be a vine. You remember in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5. They were called to be that light to the nations. That the nations would come and eat of. And yet Israel was fruitless. And they again and again and again took the good gifts of God and became barren and fruitless. So the Lord, He pruned Israel. Isaiah 5. And we get to Isaiah 11 and we see that the Lord left a root Out of the stump of Jesse. And that root. That vine. Even though the branches have been purged. That root of Jesus. We see. Here in John 15. Jesus picking up that imagery again. And that this vine. This tree has been planted again. But in Christ. Now with the pouring out of the spirit. The day has turned. The enemy has been cast out. The accuser of the brethren cast down. His power broken. And now the vine's going to grow. Now the tree is going to grow even in a dry and weary land where no water is. I love the way that Ezekiel, you you remember in Ezekiel there's this image of, of the temple and water flowing out from under the throne towards the east. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper the farther it goes. But one thing that's interesting in that description that Ezekiel gives of the coming glory of the house of God, a picture of the church of the New Jerusalem, he gives his description, he says, that the water that flows out is for the healing of the nations, and the trees grow along the shore. It should remind you of things like Psalm 1 In his law doth he meditate day and night bears much fruit psalm 92 says i think it's verse 14 even in old age are they still bearing fruit you see brothers and sisters this is dominion language this is the dominion is that the lord jesus is going forth he's getting ready to suffer he is getting ready to die on behalf of these disciples And he knows that he is getting ready to suffer, but that after that, when he ascends to his Father in heaven, they are going to suffer. They are going to be tested. They're going to be sent out in his name into dry, hostile land where there's very little natural water, where there is threats, where there is resistance by the enemy. And yet Jesus says here that the vine, the tree, is going to grow. I want you to see this because this is warfare language. And we're going to see that in today's passage. I want you to keep that in mind. In the New Testament, all disciples of Jesus are in the vine. Jewish Christians, Paul says in Romans 11, are like natural branches in the vine. They are those who are of the seed biologically of Abraham, but also share the faith of Abraham. And he describes them as natural branches. And Paul in Romans 11 describes you and I, Gentiles, as branches that were grafted in contrary to nature, but grafted into Christ to that same vine, that seed of Jesse. And that we are going to grow if you're in Christ, and you're going to bear fruit. And Satan and the enemy and the world and flesh and the devil are going to do everything they can do to cut off the water supply and to make things impossible for fruit to grow. But to the degree that we are drawing our life from the vine and the vine is that river of living water, we will grow. And the nations will be healed. It's important then that we consider what it means to be branches in the vine, specifically here at the end that we consider what Jesus means when He calls these brothers, these disciples, His friends. We looked at this last time, and I want to conclude by looking at this one more time, because this is so fundamental that we consider what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus. Because fruit bearing, because victory, being more than conquerors through Him who loved us, being those like Revelation 2 and 3 talks about who overcame by the blood of the Lamb the testimony, who inherit the blessings, it is contingent and hinging on our being friends like Abraham was of the Almighty. So what we're going to consider today is just three key questions that I think our text in verse 15, 16 primarily that it brings for us. Number one, we're going to ask who or, or what are we? Secondly, we're going to ask how? How did this happen to us? And then thirdly and lastly, we're going to ask, why did this happen? So let's look first of all at what Jesus says in verse 15. I'm going to say this, who are we? If you're in Christ. He says simply that these disciples, these beloved ones who have stayed with Him, who love Him, that they are His friends and they are no longer servants. Look at what verse 15 says. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Let's just stop right there for a minute. He makes this distinction between friends and servants, and he starts off and says, henceforth, meaning from this point forward. And again, remember the context Judas has left. Back in, the end, in chapter 13, Judas has gone to betray the Lord. And Jesus, in verse 31 of chapter 13, beginning this discourse, He says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now will the Father be glorified in the Son. You can hear the joy telling these disciples, yes, Judas has gone to betray me, but look, disciples, this is the beginning of our victory. Because I'm going to suffer for you I'm going to lay down my life for you, my friends. Verse 13 of chapter 15. But the result is that the head of the serpent will be crushed. He has bit my heel, but I am crushing his head. And if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all nations to myself. All men to myself. But you remember back in John 12... Jesus himself had said this of himself and to the disciples. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That's why Jesus is rejoicing. Because he knows what the fruit of this is going to be. But he had also said just before that in John 12, Verily I say unto thee, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit, much grain. He that loveth his life will lose it. He that hateth his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If any man serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So you see these words, they're preparing for what we're hearing in John 15. If anyone serves me, he will keep his life. He will follow me. He will do what I say and and, and be honored by my Father. He will be on board with my mission. And this plan of redemption, he's going to be part of it. All in for Jesus. All in with the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All in with go Forth and make disciples of the nations teach them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded thee all in it's going to involve them dying like a grain of wheat in order to become very fruitful it's going to involve Jesus being lifted up being killed and then lifted up so that all men would come and be drawn unto him it's always that way so he says henceforth now that this is about to happen from this time forward henceforth I'm going to change what I call you, disciples. I'm not any longer going to call you just servants. And this doesn't mean that they were no longer serving Jesus. There's not, a, there's not an antagonism here between being a friend and a servant. You can serve, and we're called to serve the cause of Christ. In fact, is the best of friends will continue to serve gladly. They will continue to serve with Christ because they love Him. But Jesus says, I don't call you servants. The word there is doulos. It's a common word in the Greek. It just means the idea of a bond servant. One who is a servile house slave. No. The idea of a servant is one who is a servant to a master or a Lord. Jesus is still the Lord of these disciples just as He is the Lord of you and me. And we are still servants of the living God. I trust you know that. But Jesus says, not by getting way of the idea of you being a servant, by adding to it. He says, no longer am I going to refer to you primarily as servants. Now I'm going to refer to you as my friends. The word philos. A friend, one who you are actively or fond, fond, fond of, friendly. Uh, friendly toward, one who associates familiar with one, a close, trusted, intimate companion. The word often refers to a, a relationship that is familial. You know, father to a mother, husband, wife, sisters, brothers, or one that is as close as family, one that is dear, that friend that sticketh closer than their brother. Think of David and Jonathan here. Not actually family, but they loved each other dearly in the Lord because they had a common faith and they loved God's kingdom. I love the words that Jesus said in Matthew 12. You remember when they brought... He's teaching and they brought His mom and His brothers outside the door and they were... You know, standing out there, and the disciples said, "Jesus, your mother and your father are outside the door wanted to talk to you. you." remember Jesus' words there. He says in Matthew 12, he says, verse 48 and following, "Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Those who hear the word of God and do it a friend, one who finds his pleasure, his delight and joy in somebody else." Remember, or in a thing. You remember, we're told in scriptures, Abraham obeyed God in faith. And James 2.23 says that he was called a friend of God. After he offered Isaac, his only son, the unique son through whom all of the promises were going to come, God said, because Abraham has loved me more than his son, because he trusted me. He says, he is a friend and a dear one to me. John the Baptist, you remember he described himself in John 3 as the friend of the bridegroom. I love this passage. In John 3, let me just read you these words again. These are are just remarkable words. John says this, chapter 3, verse 29 of John, "...He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice." Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. That wasn't John grudgingly saying, "Ah, Jesus must increase, I have to decrease. This was John rejoicing, Yes, Jesus gets to increase. And by my decrease, make much of Jesus, and my joy will be full in Him, even as His is in me. A friend... A dear friend, that's why when we get to Matthew 11, you see Jesus praising John saying, What did you go out to see? One in fine clothing? I tell you there is not a risen one greater than John among women, among the prophets. You see Jesus loved John. It was dear just as He did these, 12 disciples, these disciples who had stayed with Him, who had not left Him, who were getting ready to go with Him. The ones upon whom He was going to build the church. He loved them. They were friends. Friends who care deeply about one another. They share true love and affection and sympathy. Friends that always seek to preserve the unity of mind and heart between them. They know each other, not just know about each other. You've had friends like this. You know, as your wife or your spouse or others that just there's a deepness and a fellowship and a companion that transcends far transcends mere acquaintance. Where you know that you have their heart and they have your heart. Where you know that you share a common vision and goal and desire. That kind of friend. Working for the same things. Always eager and ready to assist and help one another. Ready to sympathize. And they love each other's friends. You know that old saying, any friend of yours is a friend of mine. Because if I know that you're my friend and we share those common goals and vision and heart... And you have other friends. You know what that means? That means I'm going to share that kind of common vision and heart and love for them too. It's the way it works in the church, right? We love the people of God because Jesus loves them like He's loved us. Judas had demonstrated himself at this point to not be Jesus' friend. Yes, Judas had walked with Jesus for three years like the other disciples. But when it came down to it, Judas showed that his real love was money. In the things of this world, he was like Demas. He loved the stuff of this earth. And he sold Jesus out for thirty silver coins. We saw where Judas's value was, but for these other disciples, stumbling all over themselves, still just right before this fighting, you see in Matthew fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And yet they would not leave. They love Jesus. Lord, to whom else will we go, for you have the words of eternal life? See, that's the mark of true friends, is they were all in for Jesus. They had His heart and He had theirs. Does He have your heart? It may sound like a very simple question, almost grade schoolish, but I dare not go by without asking that today. Does Jesus have your heart completely? Does He have all that you are? And would you say with truth, I would rather have Jesus than anything. There's an old hymn that goes like that. You may remember that. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, than to be the king of a vast domain, or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather suffer with Him and go with His people like Moses. I would rather forego the... Pleasures, the blessings, and all that went with Egypt in order to, and the passing pleasures of sin that I might suffer and have the reward of the people of God. Because I'm looking for a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, like Abraham was. So I'm fine living in tents in the promised land. That's okay. There's better things coming, and I'm going to be part of that. So Jesus doesn't call them servants. And he says specifically here, you notice he says, that lords, masters, they deal with their house servants in a certain way. That is, they just the servants just follow orders. They do and they're told. And that is certainly a mark of faith. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But Jesus says here of these disciples, I call you friends because all that the Father has shown, he's I've heard from my Father. I'm making known to you. I'm bringing you into my inner circle, disciples. Servants only know their lords and masters in a functional sense. In terms of knowing, obeying rules and orders. Following commands. They're governed by rules. By basic principles. Paul in Galatians and Colossians refers to those principles with the word, word is stoicheia, it means you see in your translation sometimes elementary principles or the basic principles of this world. They're like kids in kindergarten who got to learn their ABCs and their 1, 2, 3s. And you'll never do algebra. You'll never do calculus. In my case, I never did calculus. But if you have such ambitions, you'll never build rockets. You'll never write great poetry unless you first learn your ABCs. And the rudiments of language. You need to be in the school of Christ and learning there. But as you grow, there is a depth of friendship that grows. I think some of you parents have probably experienced this, right? You love all your children. And you're thankful for every one of them. But as they're younger, you know, we're working on that obedience and heart issues. You know, you love them dearly, but that relationship seems almost more like servants. You know, and we have to work on that as they get older, and you begin to see them not just doing ABCs and one, two, threes, but beginning to write poetry, beginning to have those conversations where you're sitting there and we are sharing vision and mind and heart and praying together for the things of the kingdom. It comes a point with your with your kids, and I'm experiencing this, particularly with my older ones right now. Some are saying, you know what? Yes, you're still my son or daughter, but now you are my friend. I have a friendship there. And I'll tell you things I might not tell the younger ones. (laughs) And we may get up and pray or read the Word of God together first before everybody else does or something like that because there's just a kindredness of there and a joy of maturity that's coming. Still serving together, but now more like friends. friends have that deeper relational knowing of one another friends of the lord and a master of the house and vineyard are entrusted with the truth the deeper the secret thoughts the goals and the plans the hidden things the why and the what and the how of what's being not being done not just to do it friends are also entrusted with more authority in the house to rule and to direct other servants to serve and aid in the Planning, um, decision making, and carrying out of the goals of the family. And Jesus says that He tells them more, and He will tell them more. You recall back in John chapter eight, Jesus had said these words. He had said uh, in John eight thirty one and following that these Jews who had believed. And He said, if you abide in My Word, then you are My disciples indeed. You'll recall from back in verse 7 of chapter 15, Jesus said the same thing. If you abide in My Word, and My Word abides in you, you will ask what you will, and it will be granted to you. So, the abiding in His words, in what He says, in His plans, His mission, His precepts. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It will turn you from servants into trusted friends and companions. But then, look what He says to these disciples here in this discourse. As He's heading out, look at these words here. Look with me at John 14. Just skip back a chapter and look what He had said to them earlier. He said to them, If you love Me, I'm looking at verse 15. If you love Me, keep My commandments. We've seen that already in John 15 as well. If you love me, since you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, disciples, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Do you see a pattern here? If you love Jesus, the result will be we will strive to keep His word because we love Him. And here's the other result. My Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. What wonderful promises, saints. to know Jesus more richly and closely, to know the filling and the power and the presence of His Spirit because we love Him, because we're sincerely striving, though stumbling as we are, to follow Him in spirit and truth. And He says the result will be that we will come and make our home with You and dwell in You more fully, more deeply, more richly. Verse 26 of chapter 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Is that not what Jesus means here in John 15 when He assures these disciples that He would tell them all the things that He had heard from His Father? He was going to tell them things and make known to them His will in a way that servants would never know. Lastly in John 16. Skip ahead a chapter. Verse 12 to 15. Look what Jesus says. I still have many things to say to you disciples. But you cannot bear them now. I love that. I have many things to tell you. But you can't bear them yet. However when he. The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For I, he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Just what Jesus said. All that the Father has told me, I'm going to show you. I'm going to make known to you my will because you're my friends. Because you're dear to my heart. Because I know that you have my heart and I have yours. In life and in death. I love that. So I'm just going to ask at this time again. Saints, are you all in with Jesus as your chief your best, your highest goal, and friend. Before anything else can come, we have to establish that. That Jesus is my treasure. And He is the one for whom I am desiring to live and die with Him. And secondly, we need to ask this. If I am Jesus' friend, then how do I now know these things that Jesus heard from His Father? I mean, He just told the disciples, the Spirit of truth is going to come, and He's going to make known to you all things that the Father said. And you say, well, that's fine for them, Steve, but that was 2,000 years ago. How do I know the will of God? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul lays this out for us. Jesus told these disciples on whom He was going to build the church that He was going to lead them into all truth. And he did, and we have the rest of the New Testament now as a result of that, having led into all truth. How does that get to you and me? How do I know all truth? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read a little bit in verse 6, and then we're going to head down to verse 12. He says this, However, we, speaking of the apostles, we, we apostles, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for His glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those who love Him. Let me translate that for His friends. For his people who love him. And then he goes on. But God has revealed them to us. Again to the apostles. He's revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yea the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man. Except the spirit of a man which is in him. Even so no man knoweth the things of God. Except the spirit of God. So so far what we have here is, He has said that Jesus and the spirit of truth. Has led the apostles into all truth. Just like Jesus said He would do right here in John 15. All things that He received from the Father, He would make known to them. But then look what it goes on. Verse 12 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Now we apostles, we have received, uh, we all have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Let me see that. That's how it gets from Jesus to the apostles to you, brothers and sisters. Because you have that same spirit of truth in you. Dwelling in you. Leading you into truth. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but words which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So here we are with us, a natural man, a fleshly man, a Judas does not receive the things that Jesus revealed to his apostles, the things of the Spirit of God, the things in the Word of God. They don't receive them for their foolishness to them, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here it is, folks. If you're a friend of God and you love God, truly in sincerity, Jesus said he was going to reveal all things to the apostles. And he most assuredly did through the Spirit of truth. And those things were, as our Westminster Confession, chapter 1, 1, as we read this past Wednesday, were preserved and codified in writing for the preservation of the church and for the propagating of truth, for our comfort and hope and joy. And that when we read the Word of God, the words that Jesus gave to those apostles, we read them with that same spirit that they had, the spirit of truth that dwells in you. And it's not that you receive new revelation, but you do receive illumination. Reading the Scriptures is not like reading another book. The natural man can read this till the cows come home and jump over the moon and not understand and believe. But he who is spiritual, those who possess the Spirit, you, as 1 Corinthians 1 said, it has become to us life. It has become to us hope. This simple simplicity of the Gospel. These words are life to us. And they are the word of truth to you and me. And it is what Jesus revealed for his friends. Amen? We have the words of Jesus. Real quickly, how do you become friends? How do we become friends? Look at verse 26. I'm not going to linger long here, but what a wonderful truth. And the simple answer is this Jesus chose us first. And then he changes your chooser so that you freely choose him. What a great truth. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. (laughs) The disciples weren't looking to follow Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were there out fishing. (laughs) Jesus came and He said, Come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They weren't seekers. They were being sought. And so it is with you and me. If you're a friend of God, if you are in the faith, if you have hope in Jesus, it is because He first sought you and bought you with His redeeming blood. He loved you ere you knew Him. And all your life is due Him. He plunged you to victory through His redeeming blood. He called you, He elected you, and He brought you to Himself. He goes on. And then, so that's how you become Jesus' friends. And then lastly, why? What's the point? Why does Jesus call them and call you and I as His friends? Look at the end, look there in verse 16b. He says, not only that I chose you, but that I appointed or ordained you, some translations say. I appointed you. That word of appointing and uh, ordaining is, is the It's, it's uh, like being conscripted it's being given a vocational calling a commission i commissioned you for a point, for a, for a task they were commissioned into leadership in christ's army they were commissioned to be leaders in the sowing of the field and the world and of regardening the world re-eatening the world Of causing the tree of life to grow in those barren places, being conduits where that water, that living water that Jesus talks about in John 4, flowing out of their heart, watering the world, causing fruit to grow even in desert places and rocky places. I've commissioned you. So, what did he commission them for? Real simple that you would go and that you would bring forth much fruit and that your fruit would remain. We've heard this again and again. That you would go forth in His name. Disciples, go forth. Take the gospel. Lead the church. Feed the sheep. Carry the gospel to every nation. And you recall, we get to Acts and the early church, they were still hunkered down there in Jerusalem. And so what did the Lord do? He sent persecution, right? He sends persecution. He sends Saul and persecution and the church is scattered. And it says that when they did, they went everywhere proclaiming the gospel. Taking it with them wherever they went. Go forth. Wherever the Lord has planted you, go forth in your neighborhood. Go forth to your neighbors. Go forth to the people. Wherever the Lord has planted you, go forth. Take it as your personal mission that the Lord has put you there to bear fruit so that your neighbors and they will see the light of Christ through you, wherever He's planted you. And then He says, Go forth and bring forth much fruit. And He says that it would be fruit that remains, that abides. Again, this is that Eden imagery, that dominion mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue. Sounds very much like Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, does it not? Be fruitful. Take the throne room of God. Take the life of the tree of life wherever you go. And multiply and bring forth fruit that remains. That's God's will. He appointed and commissioned each of us to do that. So then that brings up another question. How, if that's the case, how do we fulfill that calling? How do, how do I bring forth fruit that remains? How do I bring fruit, forth fruit that's not just going to rot on the vine? That's going to be useless and never eaten for the healing of the nations. And I want to close with this thought, but I want to drive this home. Jesus says this, so that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And this gets back to that issue we talked about at the beginning. Of that, this idea of commissioning, of being conscripted, of the tree going and being planted in desert places. This is battle language. This is warfare language. You say, Steve, what are you talking about? I just want to read to you a little something in closing. Something the Lord has shown me recently, which about this passage, John 15, 16, but I want to share it with you and I want to let these words sink into us and challenge us. The connection between prayer and outreach or fruitfulness, whether in the calls of missions or locally in your neighborhood. The connection between prayer and this can be seen in this passage of John 15, 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. See, the logic of this sentence is crucial for us to grasp. Why is the Father going to give the disciples what they ask in Jesus' name? Answer, because they have been sent to bear fruit. Simple enough. The reason that the Father gives the disciples the instrument of John 15, 16 implies that the reason Jesus gives them their mission is so that they would go and bear fruit. That's what he means when he says that or so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, that we are at war, not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that we have land to conquer. For the name of King Jesus, until we understand that we're at war, prayer will malfunction. You can't know what prayer is really for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It's as though the field commander Jesus called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission. Go, bear fruit. And he handed each of them a personnel transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and you seek his victory first at all costs, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover in when you need it to gain ground. But what have millions of Christians done? We've stopped believing that we're in a war. We live like we believe it's just peace and prosperity, even if we don't believe in the welfare gospel. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not for the purpose of calling in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but as a means to ask for more comforts in the den. One more. Satan, so the truth is reaffirmed. God has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. We are on this earth to press back the forces of darkness. And we are given access to the headquarters by prayer to advance the cause of this kingdom. When we try to turn it into a civilian intercom to increase our conveniences to make us just feel better, more at ease, it stops working. And our faith begins to falter. We have so domesticated prayer that for many of us it is no longer what it was designed to be. A wartime walkie-talkie for the accomplishment of Christ's mission. The advance of His kingdom. The overthrowing of His enemies. And the bearing of much fruit. We simply must seek for ourselves and for all of us a wartime mentality. That's why we believe in the covenant of God. That's why we raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's not so that we can have a 200-year plan of ease and faithfulness, of ease. It's so that we can raise up generations to tell others about Jesus and to bear much fruit. Brothers and sisters, that's why we want fidelity. I want to pray for my children and say, Lord, make them fruitful. Do whatever you need to do with each of them, but make them fruitful. Cause many other people to know the love of Christ and to believe in Him through their lives, both their own children as well as those who they come in contact with. Until we feel the desperation of a bombing raid or the thrill of a new strategic offensive for the gospel, we will not really pray in the spirit and power of Jesus. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie War Room. Raise your hand if you've seen that. That's a great movie. Don't miss me. I've seen better movies made. but I want to challenge us today. In the context of what Jesus says here in John 15, 16. We can't get away from this. I have appointed you. I have called you to go. To bear fruit that it would remain. And this is how you're going to do it. So that. So that. Whatever you ask, you shall ask the Father in my name. He will give it to you. I ask the Father in Jesus' name, in the name of my commander, in the name of the captain, the general of the army, in his authority, in his name. We say, Father, in the name of Jesus, for the advance of his cause and the increase of his mission, for fruitfulness to abound in my heart, in my children's hearts, my neighbor's hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm getting on my face and I'm pleading the promises. Lord, cause it to bring fruit. And I'm not going to get up and let go of you until it does. Why was Israel named Israel? Because he wrestled with God and he prevailed. I want to challenge us, brothers and sisters, as I challenge myself. When I was studying this passage, I must admit, that last phrase just grabbed me. Because the purpose of our prayer, the reason why we're praying, brothers and sisters, is not primarily Lord just make it easier on me. Lord, I, I. No. It's Lord, advance your kingdom. Lord, give me a vision. Show me what you want me to do in my neighborhood with, to, to advance the kingdom of Christ here. And when I pray in the name of Jesus, I can expect he's going to give me and help me to do that and help you to do that. Brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, we are at war. We're not at war with other people. We're at war with demonic forces, spiritual darkness in the heavenly places. But the Scripture has said that you and I are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. How are we going to be more than conquerors? Brothers and sisters, we must learn to pray. We must learn to pray boldly. We must learn to pray in Jesus' name. We need to have a war room. Brian and I were talking this past week. We've got a Wednesday night study going on here. And that's been a great thing this past one. I, I want to encourage you, if you haven't, can't, haven't come to come give it a try. What a great blessing it was to be in God's Word in our confession this past Wednesday. But we've decided, and again, this will be optional. We know there's kids and we have lives, but if you can, we're going to be gathering afterwards. I don't know how we're going to do this yet, but we're going to find a war room here. And we're going to learn to get on our face before the Lord and cry out like we're people at war. And to pray like the victory is contingent on it. Because brothers and sisters, by God's sovereign ordination, it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, I, I confess to You that I have so, so often been... My, my, my desires for Your kingdom have been so feeble. Father, I say that I want my neighbors to know the Lord, but I don't pray faithfully for them. I am not seeking opportunities to just boldly just look for ways to do good works for them. To show them the love of Christ in tangible ways. I'm, I'm isolated. Father, often living more in fear of them than in fear for them. Father, I pray that You would increase our faith, starting with mine. Father, I pray that You would give us such a heart to embrace this wartime mentality that we would, if need be, take austerity measures that we would plan and we would pray and we would ask You to use us and make us fruitful for our children, for our neighbors, wherever You've planted us, that they would come and eat of the tree of life of the fruit of our lives, and that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, I desire that we would see people converted and come to Christ through Providence Church. I desire that we would grow, not because we want to build a mega church, but because we have a vision, Lord, for Providence Church to expand and that we would be disciples and plant churches throughout central Illinois and beyond. in Peoria and Springfield and Bloomington and others, Lord, that You would... Raise up your saints. But Lord, that's going to be as people come to know Christ through our testimony. So Lord, make us fruitful, we pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are weak and we are prone to stumble, but you are mighty and you are faithful. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Lord, make us fruitful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.